Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on this season seven opener of Word, a Nigerian-American transplant from Chi-Town to the Valley has a new young adult fantasy novel. The world is bigger than you. You have a role to play in this. This is not a tame world with no risks. There's beauty, but there's also ugliness. And since it's February, that means it's time for King JZZ's annual haiku writing contest. So stay tuned for the topic. Plus, the Arizona Matsuri Festival in Phoenix happens later this month. But the uptick in coronavirus cases has forced another year of virtual activities. In addition to a large Asian population, we also have the history of the internment camps here in Arizona as well. But first, Valley Benson is a resident of Tucson and released her award-winning debut novel Blood and Silver back in 2020. The pandemic killed its promotion, though. So she joined us to talk about the work now that regular author events are back on at bookstores, cafes, and other places. She's a bit uncomfortable with Zoom, so we caught up on the phone recently. I began our discussion by asking if she's always been an avid reader. Yes, very much so. Anything that was not nailed down, my mother used to say. (laughs) And so I guess it, it seems kind of natural then that your first book would use Arizona as the setting, the topic, if you will. We have a couple of boys, and when they were little, we used to go to Tombstone and see the shootouts. And I just, at some point, I got curious what it would be like to live there. And I would look at this little bitty town, and I (laughs) tried to imagine it as a town of 15,000, which it was in its heyday. And I just kind of, uh, the swamper interested me that guy who stole all the silver downstairs at what's now Big Nose Kate's and just kind of evolved and all the uh, brothels, of course. I was going to say, it's hard to separate out from the legend of the Wild West. The book is called Blood and Silver, and it offers a host of colorful characters and what's described as a meticulous attention to period detail and a story of the best and worst of human nature. I wonder if you could briefly describe the setting of Tombstone at that time. They had over 100 taverns, lots of problems with gunfights and so forth, and one whole end of town would be brothels. You know, you have a a boom town, you're going to have brothels. That's where they go. And from that, the idea grew that there were so many women there that they call them soiled doves were busy at the time, and a lot of them married the mine owners or married cowboys, that kind of thing. It was just interesting to me that there were so many people there, and I thought, what if you were a little girl and lived here? What would you think? What would it be like? And my little heroine's 12 years old, much older than 12, actually. She's <laughs> pretty mature for her age and right. stuck in this brothel, and uh, her mother's addicted to opium, which is the fault of the madam. And she's uh, trying to figure out a way out for both of them. And she does. (laughs) She meets a woman named China Mary, who is an actual person in Tombstone, very famous in Tombstone. Uh, Chinese, a lot of people don't realize that it's a large Chinese population. And they had their own part of town, and they stayed in their own part of town. 
and uh, were mostly employed as domestics and cooks, and China Mary found all of them jobs and guaranteed all of them would be honest or she would pay for what was stolen, that kind of thing. My little girl meets her, and they end up weaning her mother off the opium she's on, and everybody's happy at the end. As far as the amount of research, I can just tell by you describing the plot and the characters and their interaction, it it must have taken a long time to do that. How long did it take? Off and on, probably worked on it for five years. Kept making trips down to Tombstone. Oh, I forgot to look at this. I forgot to find out about this. And a lot of old-timers there, or not even, they don't even have to be old-timers, know the stories and get a lot of uh, information, not necessarily accurate. I had to double-check that. But right. um, a lot of people know the legends and were useful in helping me, directing me where to look, really. Did you find that the population was pretty open to talking? I mean, did you just take a notebook or some recording device and talk to them? Yes, they love talking about it. <laughs> you better talk about this. You better talk about that. <laughs> so so I did the they're I acting as almost editors in a way. Exactly. And, you know, I walked the streets and looked in. A lot of the original buildings are still there, renamed, but they're still there. And the original, what the Grand Hotel for the where part of the story takes place is still there as Big Nose Kate's, but it's um, it's funny that they so many of these, not ghost towns, but like Wild West towns like Dodge City and Deadwood, they've really commercialized everything. Right. And made it into a big uh, party. Whereas tombstones just stay the same. <laughs> they still have the boardwalks and still have the bullet holes in the walls and... It's amazing, really, when you think of how old it is, that they've just been there all, everybody there is really proud of it, so. It's obvious that you, of course, learned a lot about history, and specifically about Tombstone and that region. Did you learn something about yourself as a writer Um, through this process? It seems like I just begin, and the story writes itself, so a lot of the things that happened in the story were just happening in my mind at the same time. I wasn't really, I didn't really have a solid plot figured out, but um, I learned I would, I'm really glad I didn't live back then. <laughs> I like the central question, like, what if you're a young girl growing up? I mean, this is still a question today. It's like, what is my future? Right. Well, I <laughs> we were uh, in a restaurant down there, and this little girl waiting on us was about 17 and mentioned that she grew up there, and I said, what does a teenager do if they live in Tombstone? And she said, we mostly chased ghosts. Okay, that's an answer. But maybe not an employable one, right? Oh, right. I said, did you find any? He said, well, my brother and I, you know, one night uh, saw a couple of the shadow people. Okay, all righty. I'll see if I can work that in. Well, Valley Benson, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about blood and silver. Well, you're more than welcome, Tom, and I hope that everything goes well for you. You stay well and keep those masks on. Yes, absolutely. Thanks so much, Valley. Okay, thank Take you. Care. Okay, okay, best of health. Bye bye. Bye bye. You can find out a bit more about Valley Benson on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, a Nigerian American transplant from Chi Town to the Valley has a new young adult fantasy novel. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Get a lot of things delivered these days, and now that includes the latest Arizona news from KJZZ's Sun Up podcast. 
I'm Phil Latzman. Everything you need to know to start each day delivered to you in this handy little podcast. Go to kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts and download KJZZ Sun Up today. KJZZ is investigating your questions as part of a reporting project called Q&AZ. Like any landmark, the origin of Silly Mountain's name has many different stories. Arizona has probably some of the widest temperature swings. The building materials expand and contract significantly. In addition to durability, Concrete Block provides homes with more privacy and insulation than competitors. You can ask a question at qaz.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our next guest coined the terms African Futurism and African Jujuism, and we'll explore those in a bit. Nnedi Okorafor is a Nigerian-American who recently moved to the Valley from the Midwest and is author of the new young adult fantasy novel, Akata Woman. Her personal story is one of amazing perseverance, and we began our recent convo talking about what brought her to Phoenix. There were a lot of reasons why I moved here. The main reason was like, you know, when you just know something, it was like that, where I knew this is where I wanted to be. You know, I spent most of my life in the south suburbs of Chicago and it's, you know, it gets cold there. It's right. the winter can be really, really harsh. And I've never liked the winter. And so I did several events here in Phoenix, mainly at Arizona State University. And then I also had this science fiction sort of retreat. It was really cool. And I had like, I don't know, there was something that happened at that retreat that just kind of was like, I love this place. And so I knew that for years. And then it got to the point where my daughter was going to college and she didn't want to stay in Illinois. And she also wanted me to come with her. We were trying to figure that out. And everything just like the planets aligned. And here we are. Your new book, it's called Akata. Is that right? Akata Woman? Akata Woman, yes. Akata Woman, and it's the third in a series. Mm -hmm. I read that the word Akata is a term of insult. Do I have that correct? Yeah, it's a derogatory term from West Africans. I know it mainly from Nigerians, um, but I think it goes beyond Nigerians, but like for African-Americans and foreign-born Blacks. And it's a word that I've heard all my life. It's a word that I've fought against, argued about, you know, yelled about. It's, it's a word that I know very, very well. It's in the title of, of three of my books of this series. And there's a reason for that. It's part of the story, but it's also a taking back of the term. Right. And it's also like um, a conversation starter of the term because there was very little conversation about it where like, you know, some Nigerians would be like, oh, it's not a it's not a derogatory term. It's just a term. But anyone who's been called that word knows it's not a it's not a nice word at all. It's a conversation starter. It's a way of kind of taking it back and, and turning it and flipping it and making it something powerful. There are a lot of reasons why I put that in the in the title. Where did you actually learn the art of storytelling? Is it something that's been kind of connected to your whole upbringing or did you learn it more in the academic sphere? The way that I came to writing uh, fiction, because I never wrote anything creatively before the age of 20. And like 
there was some something very specific that happened that turned me towards storytelling because before that I was playing semi-pro tennis and I was a track star. I was wow. all about the athletics. I was into the sciences. I thought I would be an entomologist, all of that. And then this incident, which basically I had severe scoliosis throughout my time doing sports. And uh, cause I started playing tennis when I was nine and I toured around the country. It was like on that level playing the nationals, all of that. And once I developed this scoliosis, it was really severe. And by the time I was 20, I had to have the surgery to uh, straighten it out because they said that if I didn't, I'd be crippled and my life would be shortened. And so we had the surgery. I woke up paralyzed, you know, and there was a there's a one percent chance of paralysis, woke up paralyzed. So I went from mega athlete to paralyzed in a hospital bed. And that was when I discovered storytelling, because that was the way I kind of kept myself sane. And so when I went back to school, because I was a student, when I went back to school, that was when I, I, a friend of mine looked at what I was, these things that I was writing, these stories to myself and was like, you should take a creative writing class. That's when I started writing. It was in those classes where I understood what it was that I was doing. So I'm very much also a product of the university because I started like understanding that what I was doing was writing fiction. You know, I understood that when I took a creative writing class. And from that point on, my whole trajectory shifted. That's such a fascinating story. And I mean, stories are who we are after all. Mm-hmm. I saw in some of the press that you've defined what's called a new category, African Jujuism, which is different than Afrofuturism. And I wondered if you could talk about those terms and how they differ. Yeah, there were two terms that I actually came up with because I felt like the distinction was very, very necessary. Um, you know, the term Afrofuturism was being thrown around a lot and the, the definition was extremely broad, like overly broad. And being too broad, it was also kind of blocking out other types of writing. And also I felt that Afrofuturism had this focus on the United States. It was yes. the stories of African-Americans and their imaginings of the future or what could have been And that wasn't what I was writing. So it's not that I had no problem with that, but that wasn't what I was writing. And so I came up with these two terms. One of them is African futurism, which is it's connected, of course, uh, to Afrofuturism in that it's dealing with the black diaspora. But African futurism is specifically and more directly rooted in African culture and history and mythology and point of view. And so African futurism is science fiction. It's a subcategory of science fiction. African jujuism is another term that I came up with, which is a subcategory of fantasy literature that respectfully acknowledges the seamless blend of true and existing African spiritualities and cosmologies with the imaginative. So it acknowledges the fact that some of these things that you're reading, like in Akata Woman, some of the things that you're reading about, I didn't make up. You know, actually a lot of the things that you're reading about in that whole series, the Insibiti script series, I didn't have to make up their actual cultural practices and beliefs. Some, there are people who actually believe those things. And then you've got the imaginative, fantastical aspect that is blended into the narrative. So that term acknowledges the fact that that is happening. Akata Woman is a massive work at over 400 pages, but it's very visual and rich with dialogue and characterization. And the work actually starts with a warning. From the Obi Library Collective of Leopard Knox, Department of Responsibility. And I just want to read the last line. Education is like wine. It takes time. It's a process. The young sometimes have to go through it, and sometimes they die trying. 
What is that warning about? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a theme that goes through the whole the whole narrative that the world is bigger than you. Like that's one of the first things that our main character, Sunny, who's Nigerian American, and then her friends. That's one of the first things that they learn from their professors is that the world is bigger than you. You have a role to play in this, but right. the world is bigger than you. So it's like this idea of risk, that the risk is real. The risk is necessary. It's kind of touching on this idea of what's at stake. What's the conflict? So that warning is something that the story needed to start off with that reminder that this is not a tame world with no risks. There's beauty, but there's also ugliness in this world. Nettie, I want to thank you so much for talking to us about your latest, Akata Woman, and it's the third in a series. Thank you so much for coming to Word. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You can find out a bit more about Nettie Akurafor on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, it's almost time for the Arizona Matsuri Festival in Phoenix, but the uptick in coronavirus cases has forced another year of virtual activities. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can get a world-class education without having to leave home. Rio Salado College offers affordable online classes, certificates, and degree programs, award-winning faculty, and flexible scheduling options. Classes start most Mondays. More information at riosalado.edu. The annual KJZZ Haiku Writing Contest is underway. A haiku is a short poem made up of 17 syllables and three lines. Submit your haiku that answers things that bring you hope or joy. The contest runs from February 1st to the 25th at noon. Visit haiku.kjzz.org for details. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our final guest for this episode is a Valley teacher and leads the steering committee for the long-running Arizona Matsuri in Phoenix. Lindsay Hoffman joins us again this year with an update on the HAPS and the recent decision to keep the festival virtual for another year due to an uptick in coronavirus cases in the state. It was unfortunate. We'd been planning since August, truly, to hold this live. The next steps after that were, how much money are we going to lose So yeah, it wasn't a decision that was taken very lightly, but when you have potential death on the line, no one wants to be responsible for that. And of course, the Matsuri attracts people from all over the place. How long has the Matsuri been in existence? It has actually been a festival since 1984, if you could believe it, at ASU called Behind the Mask. Um, Kelly Maurer, who is our current president of the Arizona Matsuri Steering Committee, was a part of this as a Japanese professor, and and he described it as an interdisciplinary endeavor that explored different facets of Japanese culture. So it was a part of ASU at that time. And Kelly, as well as um, a few other members of the group who put this festival on, had decided, you know, this was really successful. Uh, We want to keep doing something like this. And that's when someone who many people know connected to this festival, Doris Asano, uh, joined in the endeavor and they all worked together and said, let's do this every year. And they started putting on a Japanese festival every year after that. 
I think folks would be interested in terms of population here. We know, for instance, that the city of Mesa, which is the second largest city in the state, has a relatively high Asian population. But I'm not sure people would necessarily understand, okay, why a Japanese festival in the middle of the desert, for instance? Right. And I think Phoenix kind of ended up being more of a central location because, as you said, a lot of folks come from the different areas, even Tucson and Flagstaff, to attend Matsuri. But, you know, there's, in addition to a large Asian in general population in Arizona and in Phoenix or great the greater Phoenix area, you know, we also have the history of the internment camps right. that were here in Arizona as well. And so I think that that definitely plays a part. Um, there was a an exhibit that we had at the last live Matsuri that was sort of an educational component about those um, internment camps. So that I think plays a part in it as well. One thing that's also been a part for many years, uh, not since its inception, but is the annual haiku contest. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Certainly. Thankfully, this has always been a virtual type of endeavor as well, that haiku have been submitted through the website, azmatsuri.org slash haiku. So people can submit their haiku virtually. They can submit up to three haiku to the form on our website. And then we have a small group of us who get together and judge those haiku and pick the best from various categories. We have early elementary, we have junior high and high school, as well as adult and Japanese language haiku. So it's really all inclusive in that way to try to get everybody to be a part of haiku writing and the beauty of this poetic form. To be honest, it inspired our own contest here at KJZZ, which we started. This will be our fourth annual contest, and that was in conjunction with a haiku poet that I met several years ago virtually, Michael Dylan Welch, who actually started National Haiku Writing Month in the month of February. His idea was basically haiku is the shortest form of poetry, and February is the shortest month. So I think it's been running 12 years, but uh, he's from Sammamish, Washington. And so it's something that I think really inspires people. And you were talking about younger children. I know a lot of teachers, for instance, here in the Valley and around the state encourage their students to write. And then some of them actually have made it, I've heard, part of their formal curricula. And so I'm sure that you get kind of a shared audience in that. But do you have any idea the total count of entries that you received last year? Last year was actually maybe it's it's to be expected. I think we only got about close to 400 entries. In past years, we've gotten entries over the thousands. I know there were a lot of schools that were virtual and a lot of the participation, and as you said, we get from teachers who have incorporated this into their curriculum. Uh, and we have curriculum on the website for any new teachers. Uh, so we're hoping to get more than that this year. And just to double check, is there an overarching theme or anybody can submit any haiku on any topic? The overall theme of the contest, what we look for are haiku that are specifically about Arizona and specifically focused on nature. Because part of haiku, the art form itself, is almost a focus on one moment 
in nature. Uh, but that being said, you know, we've had haiku that have been kind of funny or entertaining in some other way that have just popped out at us that, um, you know, may not fit the theme exactly, but still show beauty in their own way. Our theme for Matsuri this year is Kintsugi. For anyone who's not familiar, Kintsugi is when a piece of pottery would break. Um, they It's considered an art form where they would mend it with some gold inlay, essentially making a new piece from a broken piece. And we kind of chose this to symbolize uh, a coming back together and creating something a little bit more beautiful than it was before, despite having been broken. And so I would really like to see some haiku inspired by that theme, because I think that there's so much deeper meaning there, especially in light of the pandemic these past two years. So that would be really awesome to see. Yeah, quite a poetic term. That's just beautiful. You took the words right out of my mouth. Lindsay Hoffman with Arizona Matsuri, I want to thank you so much for coming back to Word and talking to us about this year's festival, which is virtual. We should remind folks. We call folks friends who come back, and we appreciate you being one of them, Lindsay. Well, thank you so much for having me. You can find out a bit more about the Arizona Matsuri on our website, word.kjzz.org. While you're there, don't forget to enter KJZZ's annual haiku writing contest. The topic is things that bring you hope or joy. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks for listening. Word. Word? Word. Was the word. Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.